0: If you're one of the kiddies i'm sorry this isn't a super kid friendly sermon i don't know what to what to do about that but i hope that you've got something to draw peter do you have something to draw with no you're 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 doing this crayon free today okay all right okay (laughs) anyways maybe you can count how many times we say the word story and we'll have a little prize at the end okay Today, we're uh, following in our sermon on uh, our series, excuse me, on the parables. And parables are many stories that Jesus told. And at one point in Luke, actually, the disciples asked Jesus, why are you telling all these stories? And Jesus said to his disciples, he said, so that when people hear, they won't understand. And when they see, they won't perceive. And that seems like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Why would you tell a story that essentially is not to be understood? Jesus wasn't actually trying to exclude people from the kingdom when he was telling them stories of parables about the kingdom. In fact, what he was saying is, you can hear these stories on multiple levels. And if you have ears to hear, you can go from one level to the next. And I've been really helped by a book by Mark Manel in which he says that parables can first be seen as a picture. Then, as we spend time with them, they become a mirror. And then they become a window. So, today I want to talk about this parable and see if we can sort of move us along there. The Lord has been doing a lot of work in my life, and I want to share with you what He's been telling me. I hope it's of relevance to somebody. But let's just pray as we put our hearts before God. O oh Lord, open our eyes, open the ears of our hearts to see ourselves in this parable, but mostly to see the good news of your kingdom, so that you can transform us from rich fools to wise stewards. Could we have the first PowerPoint? I, an example of a, I, I live with somebody who does a lot of paintings. And uh, one of the things that he says in terms of paintings, is the next slide up? Apparently not, oh, there we go, okay. So this is a a painting uh, by my husband, Peter. And the first thing that uh, attracts people to the painting is the artistry of the work, just a beautiful painting. But Peter says that people actually only buy things that they see themselves reflected in, in some way. So I think I might buy this because I sort of see myself somewhat reflected in it. But as a painting sits on a wall for a while, actually people began to see through the painting and into where it takes them. It can take them to the landscape, it takes them to the, to the mountains beyond, to the warmth of summer, or to any space that is captured in the painting. So today, I want to sort of talk a little bit about the parable. First of all, draw your attention to its artistry. Then I hope we can look at it as a mirror. But finally and foremost, to look at it as a mirror, what it tells us about the kingdom of God. So um, let's just look at it as a, first of all, the parable as a picture. I'm actually in awe of Jesus' ability to tell brilliant stories. And this is one story in which in less than, just a little over a hundred words, he takes us on a very complex journey with lots of emotion and a kind of surprise ending. And in any narrative, there are devices that can be used. And it's interesting in this story, Jesus actually uses three different types of narrators. There's the narrator, the person who tells the story in the third voice. In the third person, there was a rich man. And then there's the the sort of first person perspective where we actually hear the thoughts of the person as they're going through the story. And then another narrative device is to use the omniscient narrator, the one who sees all and and, and sort of is holding the whole picture together and Jesus does this beautifully. And if we could just go to the next slide, this is a kind of classic narrative plot line where we have this, uh, we have first some setting and actors and then we have a dilemma and an actions that resolve, that take us to a complex and a a climax that can either end in a happy ending where things are better than they were at the beginning or sometimes in a tragedy where they were worse than they were. So let's look at this in the context of the plot line. There was a land, let's start off with the setting and the actors, it says there was a man, there was a land of a rich man, which was very bountiful. And his happy dilemma was that it was so bountiful, he said to himself, there's no place for me to store all my crops, what shall I do with all this bounty? He planned some actions, I know, this I will do, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And i will store all my grain and goods there and i will say to myself this is the climax self you have plenty of goods stored up for many years to come relax take it easy eat drink party it up be merry surprise ending comes when god says to him you fool this very night your soul is demanded of you And then who will own everything that you have prepared? Isn't it masterful? But of course the parable is in service of a theme which Jesus himself gives us. And the theme is be on your guard, beware of all kinds of covetousness, all kinds of greed. And he also gives us the moral of the story at the end when he says, it is foolish to store up treasure for yourself and not be rich towards God. So what does Jesus tell us about greed through this parable? In order to see this as a mirror, I'm gonna just leave this up before we get on to our next one. I think we need to just zoom out a little bit and see in the context in which this parable happened. There was a man in the crowd who said, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, when we hear inheritance, we think how big is the bank account? But in those days, Inheritance would have immediately brought to mind the idea of land or property, and so Jesus' audience, they would have been tuned in to hear the land. So think again how the parable begins. The land of a rich man was very bountiful. The land was bountiful. The land is one of the main actors in the story, not the protagonist of the rich man, so the land. And that is why I chose Leviticus 25 today as our Old Testament reading. And thank you Juliet again for such a beautiful reading. Can we just see the next slide and we'll just talk about what God says. So this is is what uh, God is saying to the people of Israel about the land that he's given to them. You'll see that it says after reading about the Sabbath, the rest for the land and then the Jubilee, God says that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine and you are sojourners and strangers with me in this land. The idea is that you are stewards or managers of the land, not owners. And then it says you shall allow redemption of the land if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property then his nearest relative or brother will come and redeem what has sold. So the idea is that we keep the land in the clan And that family is always responsible first to mitigate poverty but if they're not in a position to buy the land then there was always the jubilee that in the time of jubilee at 50 years any land that was sold because of poverty would be released and returned to his property and that the idea is that poverty was never intended to be permanent god always wanted a solution to poverty So in the context of that, maybe we can stop the the slides and I I won't need them for a little bit, thank you. So what do we learn with this background about greed and foolishness in this parable? I think that by having Jesus, by having us listen to the thoughts of the rich man is telling us to be really attentive that greed starts in the way we think and believe. So let's, th- let's listen to this man's inner discourse. The first thing, his inner discourse is all about me, my, mine. His fundamental belief is that these are my possessions for me to dispose of as I please. The rich man does not see that his possessions or his bounty has any relation to the land or to God. Sorry, I don't know how to, well, I guess. Anyway, we can leave it up there. Is that okay? Do we do we think of our possessions and everything we own as being ours? Notice also that the pair in the parable, the rich man's plan is entirely focused on him as the complete beneficiary of his of his uh, of his land, and it's focused on his own enjoyment he says relax stop working so hard eat drink be merry see the world enjoy your seven day vacation, your seven day weekends chase the sun the last part I don't think is actually what it says but it sure reminds me of all the advertising we get for our sound retirement planning and I see ourselves in that. And notice also that the rich, where the man's rich man's trust lies it lies in his possession he says to himself self you have plenty of goods for many years to come your future is assured he's trusting in his possessions to assure his future welfare and actually that disordered trust is the problem with greed in the bible greed is often equated with idolatry precisely because greed makes us trust in our possessions and in our wealth more than we have trusting in God. What are you trusting in to ensure your desired future? Notice how the parable ends the thoughts of the rich man are cut short by the voice of the omniscient narrator who says, you fool. Why is the man a fool? First of all, he is foolish in thinking that his possessions are his to dispose of as he pleases because he has either forgotten or chosen to ignore the fact that bounty comes from God, and God has actually been has given us temporary custody of everything we own. Think of your most treasured possession, riches, house, children, lover, talent. Do you think of it as yours? Or can you see it as something that God has given you charge of? Second, he is foolish in thinking that he's the principal beneficiary of all his bounty because he has either forgotten or chosen to ignore the fact that God made humans stewards of the earth to care for the land, to care for the animals and plants, and to care for one another. Throughout scripture, we are told that those with resources need to share with those without resources. That is God's way. The generosity of the rich is often God's answer to the prayer of the poor. So how does God figure in your image of your dream life? Finally, this man is foolish because he's trusting in his possessions and his control over them to guarantee his future welfare. And he's become aware too late of the omniscient narrator who cuts short his life, the one who holds his life in his hands and says, you have to stand before God and give account of the way that you've lived. Ouch. I don't know about you, but I found this a really uncomfortable place to be. I found myself mirrored way too much in this parable. And I do want to say that Jesus, in no way in Scripture anywhere, is saying that being rich is inherently greedy or foolish. He just says there's a specific temptation associated with that. Nor is he saying it's wrong to have, you know, sound economic future planning. It's just it can't be the source of your trust. And I think it's really important to, to hear the fact that Jesus never tells a parable like this to condemn. He, he's not. He doesn't want me to end in that place of discomfort and condemnation, self-condemnation that I ended in. Jesus is telling this parable to beware. He's giving a warning. He's saying there is an alternative. So what is the alternative? What is the alternative that would let him say to us wise steward, wise manager, instead of rich fool. For that, I think that we need to see the good news in this parable. And maybe we can come back to the PowerPoint again. And I want to focus now on the good news. Good news, some of the good news is actually in the parable itself. He says, a person's life does not consist in, their, in the abundance of their possessions. That's really good news we're more than what we own we're more than our talent we're more than our treasure that's really good news but it gets better than that the other good news oops where did the t-shirt go sorry there we go the other one is embedded peter surprise on the t-shirt can you see what any see what that says what does the t-shirt say yes the t-shirt says fear and fear not and that's really good news It really is. Let me explain. In order to see the good news in this we need to zoom out just a little bit further to look at Luke in the the parable in the bigger setting. In this setting Jesus has been talking to his disciples and he's been trying to prepare them for the fact that he's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die and he, he is going to be he's trying to prepare them for his absence afterwards but also just for facing what they have to face. And it's almost like the crowd interrupts him in the middle of his discourse to his disciple and he tells the parable, but it becomes the jewel around which his, his discourse can be focused. Just before this parable, he's, he tells them, fear God, fear God, fear God more than you fear persecution, fear God more than you fear physical injury or even death. Because God is the ultimate authority, the one who holds life and afterlife in his hands. He's the one with authority to cast you into hell, even after. He's the ultimate judge, Fear God. He is the omniscient narrator who discerns our thoughts. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that this omniscient narrator, the one who sees all, sees to care, He tells his disciples, even the hairs on your head are numbered. He knows when a hair falls out of your head. He's that attentive to every detail of your life. Fear not. You're in the hands of your heavenly father. And I think that the best way to hear the words of Jesus in this is to actually talk, to sort of listen to his words as he, after the parable, kind of interprets the parable to them. So after the parable... Um, In Luke 12, Jesus says to his disciples, talking about the parable, he says, I want you to listen to the authority and tenderness of this. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will wear because life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the crows. They don't farm, they don't have barns, and yet God, your creator, feeds them. And you're so much more valuable than a bunch of crows. Or think about the flower of the field. They don't spin or embroider their cloth, but I tell you that not even in the height of his glory was King Solomon dressed like one uh, field flower. And if God dresses a field flower like this, that today is flourishing and tomorrow's in the compost heap, won't he clothe you? And which of you, by being anxious and worrying, can add a single hour to the span of your life? If you can't do such a small thing, why worry about the rest? So don't desperately seek what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. The nations of the world seek these things, people who don't have a covenant God who has pledged himself to them. And your Abba, your heavenly Abba knows that you need these things. Instead, seek his kingdom and these will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. When you seek his kingdom, You can trust that it is your Abba's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Put your savings and investments in heavenly treasure. Investments that don't fail and treasure that no thief can steal and no pest can destroy. So a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. That's good news. Fear and fear not, that's even better news, but it gets better because we know that in the fullness of time, creator God divested himself of all of his possessions and became a human being He became a child in a poor family, in an obscure Galilean village. But that's not the end of the story. He lived his life in such submission to and communion with God that he emerged in his thirties as a powerful prophet who proclaimed with authority what the kingdom of God looked like and told everybody it's here, it's near. But that's not the end of the story. Because of his proclamation, he died a violent death at the hands of the religious, political, and social institutions that were threatened by his message. But that is not the end of the story. He was raised from the dead. And he taught his disciples, and his disciples came to discern with the giving of the Holy Spirit that he died to redeem humanity from the poverty and slavery it had, to grasping greed and fear of the wrong things. Jesus is our brother-redeemer. That's the good news. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich towards God. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We are his treasured possession. You are his treasured possession. He died for you. He died to redeem you. And to use the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your comfort in life and in death? My comfort is that I do not belong to myself but belong body and soul in life and in death to my loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeemed me by his most precious blood and who redeemed me and saved me from the tyranny of darkness and brought me into his kingdom of light. I say another two months. belong to God. And that's not really even the end of the story. We're living our stories now. In Leviticus, when a brother redeemer purchased the land of someone who had fallen. Not now, not now. Later. Okay. The person who was, the, the brother whose land was redeemed actually stayed on the land as a hired hand and labored for the land. And then at the end in jubilee the land came back to them so it was the idea of being he was a wise steward and he was helping his brother and i feel like jesus has given back our lives he's given us our treasure that we can manage on his behalf as our brother redeemer what a deep privilege and opportunity it is that we have as wise managers in the kingdom of god not to be rich fools but to be wise stewards In contrast to the rich fool who thinks of his possessions as I, me, mine, the wise steward recognizes his or her bounty as coming from the Lord, and that all the treasure and talent that we have belongs to God. In contrast to the rich fool who thinks I am the main beneficiary of my possessions, the wise steward says, what does my lord and master want me to do with my talent, my treasure, and my time today. And finally, in contrast to the rich fool who trusts in possessions to assure his future, we can trust in a God who sees everything, who counts the hairs on our heads, who knows what we need. From that position, we can be generous. We can be in the way of the kingdom. We can be generous to God by being generous to others. We don't control how much time we have, but we're here today. Today you have the opportunity, somehow, to use your time, talent, or treasure to be the prayer, an answer to prayer, to somebody who is crying out to God today for something that you can give. That's so exciting. was thinking about this parable, and I wanted to write an alternate ending because I wanted to write an ending where instead of God saying, you rich fool, God could say, wise woman, you have been, you've built up treasure in heaven and have been rich towards me. Cynthia, yes or no? No? Should I say it? Okay. Do I have time? Anyway. Okay, this is my alternate ending, but I encourage you to do it. Anyway, I don't know, not as good as Jesus, but the land of a rich woman was very bountiful. And she thought to herself saying, self, what can I do since I don't? I have more crops than I can put in the barns that I've got? She said, this is what I'll do. I'll store all the grain I can hold and give the surplus to the hired hands so they can hold it till next harvest if we need it. And then I'm going to invite the whole village to a party. And we're going to celebrate God's bounty. And I will say, today, together, we relax, we eat, we drink, we enjoy ourselves. We praise God. I hope God would say to her if she had to go that night, wise Stuart, that was laying up treasure. Come in, look at my party. I don't know if he's going to say that, but... In the name of the Father, who loves us so tenderly. And in the name of the Son, our brother redeemer. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to see things differently in our world.